Okay, everybody, so I'm going to have to ask you a question. Um, two years ago, we were supposed to go to a wedding, and uh, Sue's mum got really, really crook. Uh, and so we didn't go to the wedding. We spent two weeks in the hospital looking after her and keeping her alive. But one of the things that Sue bought for me was clothes for the wedding. Um, and uh, one, of the, one of the items that she bought me was uh, this... Uh, jacket and time and again over the last two years she's kept saying why don't you wear that jacket I bought you and I said look what it looks like and she said what's the matter with that I said I look like Benny Hinn I don't... and I tried to get People agree with me today, and everyone said it looks lovely. <laughs> I've resisted for two years, I can do it for another two years. <laughs> Sorry about that, Mike. We're having uh, Billabong's having a lot of problems. I've put these two new speakers up on the wall, and it's doing a lot of feedback. Um, do you want me to sit back? <laughs> right. Um, now, after that little thing, I've got news and notes. I do, nor, normally, I don't like to do news and notes. And by the way, welcome online um, uh, fellowshippers. It's wonderful. Next Sunday, can I please ask you um, if we could start at 12.45 and not 1? Um, there are things that we have to do. Part of the problem is uh, when we have praise and worship, we have companies around the world that have um, uh, technology that sucks into every church, every public um, um, venue, whatever. And if they think that someone is broadcasting something that belongs to them, uh, it, that they shut it down. Uh, they can shut our, our thing down. And uh, so in order to avoid that, we're thinking of starting at 12.45 from next Sunday so that we can do praise and worship without any kind of interruption, without any kind of bullying, uh, and without any kind of uh, uh, feeling that we're, you know, we might be doing something wrong. So that's the first thing. Um, and the other thing is we're having so many people now on our Wednesday night Bible study, especially as Zooming, that when people come to the house... Um, and, and join in and then we have people on the Zoom. It's very hard for me because I'm a people person and I like to talk to people. And I like to talk to people in the room and I like to talk to the people who are visiting us online. So I'm going to look at splitting um, the Bible study into two separate nights, one for the people who come up to the, to the house. And by the way, you're all welcome to come up to the house. Um, I don't know where you live, but we live in Dianella, which is kind of near the centre of the city. Uh, and you're all welcome. You can come and see us afterwards if you'd like to partake. But for those who can't because of distance um, and, and Zoom, um, can you? Uh, uh, I'm going to split that uh, either on the Tuesday night or the Thursday night. Uh, we'll have the, the at-house meeting still on the Wednesday night. Um, that's because, and do you know why? Because over the years that we've been doing Bible studies, People come along and they learn the word and they get um, encouraged. But there are also times when people just need to share and, and, and tell people what's on their hearts and, and how you um, are coping with things. And a lot of times they won't do that if it's being um, broadcast. You know, there's a, there's a sort of confidentiality thing. So that's the one reason why um, I'm thinking of splitting those two meetings. So I'm, please give me feedback, but I'm pretty much um, convinced that we have to go that way. Um, and also, don't forget that um, those who are interested and those who are able, we have what's called fellowship walks that um, Phil and Jan organise every week. And believe me, it's been a winter where you can just about do it just about every week. So if you're interested in fellowship walks, um, while you're waiting um, for your coffee, have a talk to Phil and Jan and, and get on the, uh, on the WhatsApp to see if you want to partake in those. They're wonderful. They choose a different venue each week. And don't forget Joseph's storehouse. We've got a white basket up there that we need to um, put the odd thing in every now and again. And please, 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 
If you know someone doing it tough, please come up and see Sue or some of the other people uh, in charge and just say, listen, I know, you know a, a next door neighbor who's doing it really tough uh, and can you, um, you know, can you help out? That, we've already got, you, you people have been so generous, we've already got stuff waiting to go out to people. So please do not let pride or embarrassment, you know, stop you from coming forward and saying, listen, either I need help or someone needs help, okay? The other thing is because of, uh, from the end of COVID-19, we've, we've had, you know, a great increase in, in people coming. And uh, my wife, as always, thinks of things that I don't think of, because I'm usually thinking of this. And she said, we'd like to do a new directory. So if any of you here that aren't on our current directory and you would like to have um, uh, like email contact or WhatsApp contact or mobile phone contact, um, please come up and see any of the leadership um, afterwards and just say yes. Uh, and, and I think John will be getting in the next couple of weeks, another new sheet that will be put up there where the name badges are. And if you wish to, believe me, this is not a club where you have to join. This is where you are free to come and free to go. You're here because you love Jesus. You're here because you love fellowship. You're here because you love the Bible. You're here because you love the word of God being preached. So we don't compel people. You know, I've had people bless their hearts. They've come up to me over the last little while and say, so what's the membership fee for your church? I said, oh no, seriously, some people do do that. And I said, your membership fee is the petrol it costs you to come here. And that's it, all right? So, so just be aware of that. And um, on the very happiest uh, note, um, and I'm going to get in big trouble for this, but uh, it's Joan Mathias's birthday on the 6th of August um, this week. So please, when you go up, and have a coffee in the cafe, make a big fuss of it. Now, I'm in big trouble. I'm in big trouble. Because <laughs> I've just, uh, you know, she'll come up and say, I didn't give you permission to do that. Right, this, this week's message, we're continuing in the plan of God. And boy, you're going to get some scriptures this week. Um, one of the things that really bugs me um, is because of the panic that's been in the world for the last six months because of this virus and, and, and the so-called plans that, that uh, certain people have to react to this, um, this situation, is that there's far too many people going on YouTube almost several times a week and coming out with the most outrageous interpretations of um, current events as they um, relate to biblical prophecy. And what it's doing is it's actually demeaning um, the, the truth that's in the Bible about things that are going to happen. And people toss around terms like antichrist and tribulation and persecution and all the rest of it without, um, without sticking strictly to what the Bible says. And I'm going to um, go through the approach. My, my message today is called The Path to the 70th Week of Daniel, but it's going to take us a couple of weeks to get there. Uh, and we're going to start off with the words of Jesus himself when we get into the message in Matthew 24. Uh, but I want you to understand that Matthew 24 and 25, please, if you don't agree with me, I'm welcome. You're very welcome to come up to me afterwards and talk to me. Uh, but this is a passage, it's a parenthetical insert in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus is speaking to Jewish people about Jewish events at the end of time, at the end of the tribulation. And it has absolutely no relationship whatsoever to the church. And I get so annoyed when I hear people who should know better, who've been around Christianity for quite some time, use the more inflammatory phrases in this thing and say, well, this is the church, you, you, need, to, you need to do these things. You don't. But Matthew 24 has its roots in Matthew 23. And um, I in order, we're going to Matthew 23 in a minute. But one of the things that fascinates me, that when I've been doing this series called The Plan of God, um, we know that God is omniscient. We know that Jesus as God is omniscient. And so we knew that all of these things that happens uh, that happens to Jesus in his first advent, we knew or, and they knew from before um, eternity that these things had to happen. 
but I'm fascinated by what Jesus um, does in Matthew 23 because it's his crying heart for what the shepherds of Israel should have done and what the shepherds of Israel were not doing. And he gets so emotional in this. And there's been hostility between Jesus and the religious leadership of Israel all the way through. And it's rooted in a simple verse. Can we have um, uh, Matthew 2.23? Thanks, guys. Okay, and he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now, you can search the prophets, you can search the Old Testament from Samuel to Malachi, and you will never, ever find any prophet specifically called the coming Messiah a Nazarene. They don't use the word, the title, the description. So if the word's infallible, what does that mean? It means that unless you understand the Jewish theology, the Jewish culture, the Jewish, his the Jewish history from those times, you don't understand why he was called a Nazarene. And you have to understand what a Nazarene is to a Pharisee from Jeru Jerusalem. And those people from, from Nazareth were absolutely ridiculed and put down by the people in Judea. They thought they were several classes above the people from the Galilee. And so in order to understand that he shall be called a Nazarene, we have to go to Isaiah 53, verse 3. And Isaiah 53, verse 3 says this, He is despised and rejected by men. He is despised and rejected by men. Now, you have to understand the culture of, of first century Israel at that time. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the religi religious leadership of, of, um, um, of Israel at that time had absolute condemnation to anyone from the Galilee. They thought they were traitors. They thought they were low-living low people. They were um, uneducated. They were... Um, you know, the worst of the worst. And, you know, the fa fascinating thing is I, I was thinking to myself about um, um, in Australia, do we do the same thing? In America, do we do the same thing? In, in other countries, do we do the same thing? And, and you know, um, I can remember working in a mine 31 years ago up near Leinster, and there was 200 people working in this mine. And I'm not going to name the state, but there was a state that, Australians tend to pick on, um, in a jovial way, I must admit. But the amazing thing was that there was about 15 people from this state up at the mine, and they always kept together. In the, in the social arena, they always kept together. And, you know, people used to make jokes about them. And, and in America, I can say this um, a bit more freely about America, but people from the Appalachian Mountains, for a start, might be, and someone from America is laughing, <laughs> Because um, people from Appalachia are sometimes the butt of jokes, and that's putting it mildly, by other people. And also, you know, um, Southerners versus Northerners, Easterners versus West Westerners. It's, it's in society and it's in culture, but it's particularly powerful in first century Jerusalem. And so there's this hatred for Jesus on every level but one of the things that, that, um, that really came through was when I was putting this together was Jesus' passion about and love for his people and his anger at how they had been treated by the religious leadership um, leading up to his first advent. And in order to understand that, we're just going to pick a few verses out of Matthew 23. Now, notice this. This is Jesus and his disciples in the compound in Jerusalem, probably in the court of men. The court of men was the inner sanctum just outside the holy place where only the um, um, Israelite men could be, and they were in, the, uh, in, a, in a sort of uh, U-shape around the center part where the laver was and the altar. And only the priests, that was the court of the priests, and only the priests could go there. So he's probably in the court of men. There would be hundreds there. And 
they're listening to him and he is attacking them for their lack of diligence in what they were called to do as the shepherds. In verse 13, we have, but what, this is the famous seven woes, by the way, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Verse 14, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. Verse 15, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte. And when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Can you see the building emotion? Can you see the building emotion? And when I was preparing this, I thought, what could I give the congregation as an example of this? And I sort of thought, well, here there's a young um, Australian Catholic good guy, uh, made some uh, ripples around the Australian Catholic community, written some very interesting articles and is, is quite esteemed in Australia. And he leads a tour party to the Vatican. And he says, takes his people into the Vatican and there's Pope Francis and some of the cardinals and this young man goes up and absolutely rips into them in the Vatican where they have sway and tells them that they're heretics, they're frauds, they're liars and all the rest of it. Can you imagine what ha would happen to him? Mm, instant purgatory. <laughs> but, but you see, religious spirits don't like the truth. They can't handle the truth. They've got their own doctrines and their own perverted way of looking at things. And when someone comes up and tells them the truth, and this Matthew 23 is the culmination of Jesus' three and a half years of ministry because this is part of the Passion Week. And he has told them time and time and time again that he is their Messiah. He proves it with his teaching, with his miracles, with his lifestyle. He has not never committed a sin. He would um, have ripped into today's communion with Leslie because, you know, he didn't need to take any time to consider himself at all. He was the sinless lamb of God. But you can see this emotion that's building up. And that one, that verse 15, I, you know, sometimes it even worries me to actually have to say that. But 16, woe to you, blind guides, who say, whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. And that's the uh, rule of Korban, but we haven't got time to go into that yet. It's, it's basically attacking them for hypocrisy. Uh, God set up a system in the, in the Mosaic law where uh, healthy, young, um, middle-aged um, families were duty-bound to look after their aged parents. It was their social security system. But there was a device that they had twisted out of shape, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, where they could declare all of their goods korban, and they were dedicated to the temple. So religiously, they could not give them to anyone else because they were dedicated to the temple. But what they did is they could use as much as they like um, for their own use. And that's what Jesus was attacking, their sheer hypocrisy in doing that. And in verse 17, fools and blind, which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? Verse 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You pay tithes of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Woe to you, scribes, this is verse 27, and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. And verse 29, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. And here's one of the kickers in this, this um, um, passage, in verses 34 through to 36. Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets 
wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. And assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And verse 39, this is where his heart broken. For I say to you, you shall see me no more until you say, Baruchatah B'Shem Adonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that's what they will call out to him when he comes back with us at the end of the tribulation. That's the setting. So you can imagine he's got his 12 disciples with him. He's just ripped into the religious leadership of, of Israel in the temple and he storms out. And you've got these 12 guys going, what on earth has just happened? Boy, are we in trouble. And they say to him, they're trying to placate Jesus in verse, uh, chapter 24, verses 1 and 2. And as they're walking out of the temple compound, they try and calm him down and they say, look, look at the temple, look at the temple. Then Jesus went out, verse 1 and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you that not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, the disciples would have looked around about like this and said, You're kidding me. This temple is magnificent. Solomon built the first one that was destroyed by um, Nebuchadnezzar and then Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest came back after the Babylonian um, uh, deportation and they started rebuilding it again and then for 46 years King Herod really, really, really made it a magnificent uh, edifice. In fact, it was the wonder of, of um, the Middle East to some extent. And so they're saying... You're saying that it's going to be destroyed? And they're sort of looking at each other. And so Jesus is still walking, still fuming about Matthew 23 and what he had to say to the Sanhedrin. And so he leaves Jerusalem, goes down to the Kidron Valley, back up, and he stops and, and, and pauses at the top of the uh, road on the, the Mount of Olives. And I'm suspecting that they were on their way to Bethany to, to rest for the night. But Jesus himself stopped on the Mount of Olives and he turned around and he sat down and he started staring back at the temple in the old city. And it says in verse 3 in Matthew 24, Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age. And it's not clear, it's not even stated in Matthew, but in Mark 13, verse 3, it tells you who came there. Peter, John, James, and Andrew. So how many disciples actually came back? They must have been walking with the other eight towards Bethany and they saw Jesus, that he had sat down back behind them, and for because it says they came privately, not in a group. You must read the scriptures carefully. A lot of people skip over voices, uh, verses, thinking that they have read the things, but you've got to read them carefully. And so these four guys came back to him privately. And there's a deeper meaning, and, and the, the congregation that's been with me um, from the start, they will understand this, they've heard this, but for the new people and people online, how many disciples did he still have at that time? Twelve, all right, twelve. How many came back to ask him? Four. What's the ratio? What's the fraction? One-third. One-third out of the 12 wanted to know things about the future and what was coming. Zechariah 13, 8 and 9, it quite simply says, 
that two-thirds of the Jewish people in the tribulation will be killed. But one-third will survive the believing remnant. And you see that hint even here, that of the Jewish disciples that Jesus had at this time, only four came back to ask him the question. The other eight took off back to Bethany. There's all of these things. That's why I love the scriptures, but seriously, you really have to um, um, get an idea of the theology and the culture and the history and the geography of Jerusalem to really get the richness out of it. And I can only really recommend, there are other books, but this is my favorite go-to book. It's by Arnold Fruchtenbaum, and uh, it's called the Life, Yeshua, The Life of the Messiah from a Messianic Jewish Perspective. And when I've had to use facts and figures um, in this presentation, I, I, got, I get them out of there. I studied his presentation, and I've met him personally in Perth um, a couple of times. Um, he's someone to be listened to. Uh, and like everyone, like everyone, I don't agree with him 100%, but I agree with him 95%, so we can leave the 5% till we get up there, and then we can you know, go, to, go to Jesus and say who was right. But in the meantime, I think if you can get 95% agreement amongst Christians, it's nearly miraculous. When I was doing my Christology um, unit with uh, David Hocking, um, I was so cock-a-hoop, that was more than 20 years ago, I was so cock-a-hoop, and I swatted and I studied and I did this and I did the next thing and did all my um, terms and sent in the final exam and everything like that. And I got my result back and I got 94%. <laughs> I was convinced I was going to get, you know, A plus, that was only an A. And so I demanded my term paper, uh, my exam paper, and they, they sent it over from America and I had a look. And you know what? I love David Hocking. I listen to him frequently. Um, uh, I like him. I, I admire him for being a teacher and a preacher for 40 years. It's a hard job to do that. But David has a problem as far as I'm concerned. He's totally and utterly rigid about the fact that, that um, alcohol is the worst thing you can ever do. All right, drink alcohol is the worst thing you can ever do. And it's, it's a very strong um, theme through conservative American Christianity, isn't it? Yeah. But the problem I have with David is, and, and one of our two guests that came to our conference last year um, actually has him in his church teaching. And at one stage, uh, he was 400 pounds in weight. And so he's had to lose it a lot for his health. And so... I've heard him on his teaching saying he can spend all afternoon or all even teach, evening teaching and he likes to go home and sit down in front of television and he likes to get a gallon of Ben and Jerry's. And I'm thinking, so alcohol's bad, <laughs> but a gallon of Ben and Jerry's is sinless? And, you know, the, the questions that I got wrong, according to him, were all the ones um, relating to alcohol. And I disagreed with him on that. So if you want 100%, you've got to give up what you hold dear to you and, and, and go with the lecturer, seriously. But, but I still love him. I still, I still listen to some of his, his teachings. In fact, I loved him. Uh, there was two weeks ago... Um, I, I got his take on 1 Corinthians, and um, he said, this is from 30 years ago when he was at Costa Mesa with under Chuck Smith. Chuck, Chuck Smithler used to do Monday night, um, David used to do Wednesday night, and Chuck Smith used to do Thursday night. And so one of the times he's, he said, from more than 30, 35 years ago, he said, I hate tape ministries. I can't stand the sound of my own voice. Well, he's been using it for 40 years. I mean, it's, it's all right. And he said, the other week, he said, I sat down and had to listen to last week's message before I went on this week. And I had my notes in my lap and I listened to my message from last week. And I didn't say a thing I had written down in my notes. 
And I tell you what, I had to laugh. I had to laugh. Because last week, I left my notes at home <laughs> and the news and notes at home. So whether you enjoyed last week or not, I winged it purely from here. <laughs> and when I heard David saying that, I laughed and I thought, yes, other people do it as well. That's wonderful. But one of the things is that um, you have to have leeway. And there are people, you know, that I've met over the years. In fact, um, someone visited the church for, for a short time earlier in the year and said, oh, no, you've got the rapture all wrong and you've got this wrong and you've got that wrong. He says, I'm going to give you all this paperwork and I want you to read it and study it and then start preaching that. And I said, I'm sorry. You know, I've been uh, a, a serious student of the word for more than a quarter of a century. I know what I believe. I know in whom I believe and he hasn't struck me down yet. So we'll just, you can have it at that, and I'm going to keep preaching the way I preach. So he went, oh. so he's gone off somewhere else. And those, sadly, those people always do, because they can't be taught. And they look for people that they can influence and get them to come around to their way of thinking. That is not what a servant of God ever has to do. I hold myself accountable to this, and I tell you what, for 44 years I've been married to her. In fact, 22nd of this month, it's 45 years. You know, we make jokes about that, but we won't say it in, 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 uh, in church. But um, she's one of the sharpest tacks I know. And so sometimes on the way home, and it takes 40 minutes, I'll get a flea in my ear. And she said, you said Abraham when you meant Adam. Oh. <laughs> Both start with A. I was close. But you know what I mean. You, you, you've got, I try and stick to what the Bible says I listen to and have been taught by very good people. Um, but there are things like, for instance, I mean, alcohol and, 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 and uh, eating too much. Uh, that's something you have to take to the Lord, all right? So these guys, the four guys, came back to Jesus and they asked him three questions. Tell us, when will these things be? Number one, what will be the sign of your coming? Number two, and how will we know that it's the end of the age? They asked him three questions in that order. And Jesus, being Jewish, answers the third question first, the first question second, and the second question last. Why? Because he has to set the scene for them to understand what he's about to say. These four guys want to know the future. And so through these guys, he's teaching believing Jews for the next 2,000 years, even those in the 70th week of Daniel, to be awake and be alert to the warnings that he is giving now, 2,000 years ago. And so the first question was, tell us when these things will be. That's the destruction of the temple. And Matthew and Mark don't even record Jesus' answer to this question. Why not? Well, they are fervent, ardent, believing Jews. And they really don't want to know that their city and their temple are going to be destroyed. They don't want to know that. They, they can't handle it. You know, uh, as an example for, of this and, and to try and get you to understand, for the last probably, what, six weeks on television, we've seen the streets of uh, the cities of America. Absolutely appalling what's happening over there. And I tell you what, if America falls, 
We better be on our knees every day praying for the Lord's safety and protection because if America falls, the little lions of Tarshish will follow afterwards because we've got a big bully just to the north of us who wants our land, our resources, our food production and everything else. So if America falls, fervently pray. So Jesus, I'm going to tell you what happens here, and we have to go to the, um, uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 20, verses, um, sorry, 21, to verses 20 to 24. And this is the answer that he gives. And only Luke, who's the Gentile, apparently a Gentile, he's the only Gentile author in the entire book. And I, it just fascinates me. Um, Martin Luther, uh, a Reformation scholar, John Calvin, a Reformation scholar um, in the 16th century, you would think, you would think that they would realise this is a Jewish book written by Jewish people, mainly about the Jewish nation. And, but their, their diatribes against the Jewish people at that time just leave me spellbound. You know, how can you claim to love God but hate the things that God loves? I don't get it. I don't understand that. How can you say, I love you, Father, I love you, Jesus, but I hate Israel, I hate the Jewish people, I don't want to know what their future will be? How can you do that? It's a contradiction in terms. Luke 21, 20 to 24, and this is what Jesus tells them, and only Luke records this, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies then know that its desolation is near. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart and let not those who are in the country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. Everyone thinks, oh, that sounds like Matthew 24, 15. No, it's a totally different event. It's the destruction of temple, the temple and the city. That warning given by Jesus in Matthew 24, 15 is for the middle of the tribulation. This is the destruction. Tishbe, in fact, we've just celebrated Tishbeav. Last week, which is the memorial on the part, behalf of the Jewish people for the destruction of the temple. It's called Tishbiav, the ninth of Av, and it was on actually my birthday this year. 20, it started on the 22nd of July. Um, this um, uh, is a preview of the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem. It is not... A lot of people, commentators, say it's the same thing as what Jesus was saying and recorded as saying in Matthew 24, 15, and that is not because it says, he says then, when you see the abomination of desolation, get out. So he's warning these disciples now that this is, when you see the uh, Jerusalem, the city encompassed about by armies, um, get out. And verse 20, and this is the, this is the punishment and the vengeance of God over them, that Jesus prophesied. Why? Because they rejected him as Messiah. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled, trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Very quick insert. The times of the Gentiles happened when Nebuchadnezzar trashed Jerusalem in 587 BC. That's when the Jews lost total control of all of Jerusalem. And even in the time of the Maccabees, they got partial control. Uh, that's 165 um, um, BC. They got partial control of the, um, of the city and the temple. Uh, and then in, that was the uh, Maccabean War. And then What's coming up now is in 70 AD, there was an uprising against Roman rule in 66 AD. 
And so Cestius Gallus, the Roman general, brought all of his legions out of Caesarea. And what did he do? He encamped around Jerusalem, just as Jesus said he was going to do. And all of the believing um, uh, Jews in the city thought, what are we going to do now? Yeshua, Messiah, said that we would be able to escape. What happened is Cestius Gallius thought that this was just a local uprising around Jerusalem. Then he learns that further up in the Galilee, there are other patriots who are cutting off his um, lines of supply and attacking his men up in the Galilee. So what did he do? He decamped from Jerusalem and went up to the Galilee and spent two years putting down that revolt. What do you think the believing remnant in Jerusalem did? They got out. 20,000 believing Jews scooted out of Jerusalem as soon as Cestus Gallius had gone up to the Galilee. And you know what? Another, I think, 10,000 came from um, um, the Galilee, from the Golan Heights and um, Samaria, and they took off whatever Jews were left there, and they took off and they hid in Pella over in the cities of the Decapolis. And so you have to be so careful not to just take one reading and say, oh, there's a similar one there. Work it out. This is the destruction of Jerusalem. And it's because, and as Luke says, it's the days of vengeance and punishment. Why? Because they rejected their Messiah. And it was prophesied. It was prophesied. And so all of the believing Jews escaped to Pella, The Matthew uh, version, which we're not going to get to today because I have to stop um, um, in the 20th century. And I have to, before I get to Matthew 24, 15, there's an event that I'm going to do next week, which is the prelude to the tribulation. And if anyone doesn't know what it is, it's Ezekiel 38 and 39. It has to happen before. And so many people have, have, even reputable people that you and I like, have said, oh, Ezekiel 38, 39, I think that's inside the seven-year tribulation. Uh, Because there's the word wrath and vengeance and hailstones and all the rest of it. No, it's not. It's not. But I'll explain that next week. But now we have um, this passage in, in Matthew 24. We need to have a look and very carefully. We're only going to go up to verse 8 today. And I'll tell you why. Because that brings us up to probably May 14th, 1948. And in verse 4 and 5, Jesus now tells the disciples what will happen as a general consequence of them being dispersed into the nations for the next 2,000 years. They don't know it's 2,000 years, but it's between his first coming and his second coming. And he uses these three verses, 4 to 6, Matthew 24, verses 4 to 6. And he says, Take heed that no one deceives you. Who's he talking to? He's talking to Jewish believers. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Messiah, and they will deceive many. So there is deception. And um, there were several people in um, Jewish history that actually rose up and gained such notoriety that they they called themselves, or they were called by their followers, the the coming Messiah. The first one was Simon bar Kokhba, in 135, 132 to 135 AD. Um, If you know anything about Jewish history, who here has been to Israel? Skites. Um, Have you been to Masada? What happened on Masada? Simon Bar Kokhba led the remnant of his um, army that was beaten up by the um, Romans. And he raced down to Masada, went up on the top of Masada. He had 900 followers, 900 men, and rather than being caught by the Romans, they all committed suicide on Masada. So he was the first one that claimed to be. Then you had um, Jacob Frank in the 17th century in Poland. He gained quite a European following for being the Messiah. Then you have in America, 
he only died in 1994, Menachem Schneerson, the Lubavitch rabbi who claimed to be the Messiah. And there was another guy called um, Abakai Zvi, um, somewhere in the 15th century or something. But all of these people claim to be the coming Messiah. And Jesus is warning about this. Now, there's another thing that you need to understand in verse 6. Look carefully at what he is saying. And you will hear in this inter-advent time period, between 1 and 2, you will hear wars and rumors of wars. These are local wars. Uh, It's nothing as far as prophecies concerned if Spain has a go at Elizabethan England, if um, Spain has a war with France, France has a war with Prussia, all of the wars that could have happened around the world, they are local wars between um, a narrow group of people. But listen what Jesus says here. You'll hear of wars and rumours of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, comma, but, oh, I love the buts. I love the buts. In, in Greek, but is frequently um, um, referenced in the Greek by peri day, which means be aware that I'm about to discuss something totally different. And it's all through the New Testament. We'll do that next week if we've got time. But the end is not yet. Verse 7, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and there will be famines, pestilences and earthquakes in various places. Verse 7 is absolutely loaded because nation rising against nation and kingdom against kingdom is a rabbinic term for global war. And you first see it in Isaiah 19, I think, verses 1 and 2, and 2 Chronicles 15, somewhere around about 30, 36. And those terms are used there in the Old Testament. But you will see city against city. The first reference in Isaiah is about all of um, Egypt erupts into like civil war, but the Egyptian kingdom was massive. So it was like, um, it was like a world war as far as the rest of the nations were concerned. But where it says here, nation will rise against nation, the nation, the word nation in Greek is ethnos. It's people group against people group. It's tribes against tribes. And so Egypt was a massive kingdom and each city was representative of a locality that was populated by a certain tribe of people that were in, uh, included in the Egyptian uh, kingdom. And so when we see ethnos will rise against ethnos and kingdom against kingdom, that is a, um, is a world war. So the end starts, the last days start as far as um, Jesus is concerned, as far as Fruchtenbaum's concerned, is I'm going to read you out a couple of things that actually blew me away about this time period. What did he say? He said, there'll be global war, famines, pestilences, and earthquakes. And this is an insert from the US Geological Survey that Arnold Fruchtelbaum has in his book. In connection with World War I, what happened at the end of World War I? We've had a pandemic. What happened back then? Spanish flu. 20 million people plus killed. My mum and dad were alive when that thing struck um, the South Pacific. In connection with World War I, this is a partial list of victims of earthquakes. Listen to this, including the following. In 1905, in India, 19,000 were killed. In 1908, in Italy, 70,000 were killed. In 1915, in Italy, 32,600 were killed. In China, in 1920, 200,000 were killed. In 1923, in Japan, 143,000 were killed. Famines, 
pestilences and earthquakes. As far as famines are concerned, <clears throat> in India, in 1900, there was a famine in India. 19 million people died. 19 million people perished. Now listen. This is where I insert a little bit of wisdom for you guys in this. I was in Coles two days ago. Uh, I go to one Coles in particular. I get on really well with a couple of the, the, the people that look after the self-service exit where you get to know them. And I said to them, I said, some of your shelves are a bit, you know, a bit light on. And she said, can't talk about it. Right. China is in such big trouble at the moment, huge trouble. Any of you heard of the Three Gorges Dam? It's actually moving. It holds back so much water at the moment that if it fails, at least 100 million people are going to be affected downstream. But even worse than that, already a major portion of their rice growing and farming land is already underwater and people in China are starting to starve. So if a billion people are starting to starve, what do you think that's going to do to the world food supply? My wife, sharp as a tack, said, when you're down at Coles, get some more rice. <laughs> so there I am with these five kilo bags of basmati rice walking around the place. So if you run, rice, run short of rice, I've got a couple of bags and I'll be quiet. Jesus is already saying world war, famines, pestilences and earthquakes in various places. All of these are the beginning of sorrows. And you say, but what about World War II? Listen, look at who was involved in both wars. Fruchtenbaum says World War I was part A, World War II was part B. World War I stirred up the Jewish people into a major Zionist movement and they awakened their, their, their realisation that the only place that they are safe, mainly because of the publicity given to a thing called the Dreyfus Affair. Any of you heard of the Dreyfus Affair? He was a captain in the French army where someone, some other French officer made a mistake and men were killed in World War I, and because he was a Jew, he was arrested and the blame was put on him. And it's called the Dreyfus Affair. And um, a few of the prominent people in the Zionist movement later on were young journalists watching this, this um, I think Theodore Herzl was one of them. And uh, they said, no, we need our own country again. We seriously need... So it started the Zionist movement. World War II and the Holocaust was the end of that period, end of that deal. And out of World War II came May 14th, 1948, the re-establishment of the nation of Israel by one vote in the UN. And that's all God needs when he's using human beings, just one vote. And that started it. So that then um, 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 starts the second phase of the end times. But Jesus is warning these Jewish people. He's saying, don't be deceived. Local wars will occur for the next period of time until there is a world war. And World War I and World War II were part one and part two of the same conflict. And I'll tell you a terrifying thing about World War I, and my wife taught me this. She was reading a book about it. You know that gallery we had of certain people up there last week? In 1916, the government of England and the government of Germany, Kaiser Wilhelm, realised that this war was going nowhere. They realised that no one was going to win this war. So they sent emissaries down to Portugal and started to have a chat about a truce because no one was going to win it. 
And do you know what happened? Those guys and their, anti, their antecedents found out about that and went down to Portugal. And this is how much power they had in 1916. They told the government of Britain and the government of Germany, you'll keep fighting until one party wins. We don't care which party it is because we've financed both of you and one party has to win. That's how much power they have. And so how many million more young men died so that the bankers could get their money? And you know, Germany, I think it was in 2002, I remember reading it in the paper, only just in 2002 finished paying off their debt for World War I. They're still paying off World War II. You see, the loser has to pay. And when you think of the power that these people have, it's amazing. But let me tell you, our Saviour just said 2,000 years ago, everything that's going to happen. And do you know what? What is our power and authority? It's the name of of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Remember that video from a couple of weeks ago, that woman in South Africa? You remember it? Those four men were going to do her terrible harm and she was defenceless except for the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And don't you ever forget that. And in your prayers, in your prayers from now on, because the end of the year is, is coming Weird things, you think the first half of this year is weird, I think the second half is going to be weird. The world expert J.D. Farag thinks it's going to be real, and whatever J.D. Farag says is okay by me, but he said the things are going to happen. And do you know what? I thought about Isaiah 40. In fact, turn to Isaiah 40, we'll finish off of this, and, and, and I'm going to really upset. The guys down on the run sheet said, you ever break the pattern... And, and we're going to do you serious because <laughs> they can't find the, the verses. But I want you to go to I, I, Isaiah 40. And when I was going through chemo last year, I, I learned more about this little passage than I ever would have from any other life experience that I ever had. And so verse 28. Have you not he known, have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, he neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Now listen to this. He gives power to the weak and to those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the robust, healthy Muscle-bound youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. What's the next word? But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. You know what? When, um, when Amir was on, online last year, and, he, and we talked about this when we picked him up from the airport, about this, this line... He maintains it's not renew, it's exchange. And I looked it up in the Hebrew. Guess what? A Jewish person was right about the Hebrew. <laughs> it is exchange. It's one of the options you can put in there. Shall exchange their strength for his strength. And when you're sitting in a chair for five hours having a, a, a thing pumped into your arm, you don't have any strength. You need his strength. And they, that is the people who wait on the Lord, shall mount up with wings like eagles. I was carried through that six-month period, never felt a bad day, never felt sick, never, 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 and I was on eagles' wings. There was nothing 
about me that kept me through going through that period except the strength of God himself. And they, that is those who wait on the Lord, shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. So that is, that's my go-to passage whenever I see insanity in the world, whenever I hear people being afraid of the future and all the rest of it, just realise this, that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, is your father. And he loves you with a love that you cannot yet comprehend. But he does. So he's going to look after you. He's going to watch after you. You know, it's like the widow of Zarephath with the jar of oil never ran out. Remember that when Jesus, with, with um, Elijah? He is going to keep us through this time the only enemy I think we will um, face is fear. Read that passage again. Perfect love casts out all fear. Never forget, never forget. Father, we come before you this afternoon. We praise you. We worship you. We love you. We sing to you. We study your word. We fellowship together in the name of Christ. And Father, I just thank you for the, such a privilege of being part of a congregation that loves one another, that fellowships together, that agrees that your word is supreme. You even elevate your word above your name. That's how precious it is to us, Father. And so as we go from this place, we have our, um, our fellowship in the cafe. I pray that everything we think, do and say would be a sweet savour before your throne. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.